Good morning, Tuolumne Community Baptist Church podcast listeners. This is your Pastor George here at the church. I'm down in the church office praying for this uh, this Sunday and uh, just contemplating all that the Lord has for me to say and do uh, for you this week. I hope you enjoyed the book of John. Um, man, it was so amazing for me. Um, it's it's so good to go back and review and reread. Um, it just I start seeing things in a different light because I am in a different place today than when I had first read it. It's amazing how the living Word of God uh, can change and change hearts and minds. It's just absolutely amazing to me. It's alive. Well, today we're starting a new sermon series. We're kind of continuing on. I've been praying and asking the Lord, is this the way you want me to go? And I believe truly that it is. We're going to move right on to the book of Acts. I entitled this sermon series, The Acts of the Holy Spirit. I realize the title of the book is really The Acts of the Apostles. But truly, what you're going to learn and find out that it's the Holy Spirit who dwells upon them and within them, who knows them, who Uh, ignites them and gives them the strength and the ability to do what they're doing and also what we're doing with our lives today. I hope you enjoy it. Stay with us. It's going to get started here in just a few seconds. Uh, This is chapter one. We're going to do our best to go all the way through the book of Acts, just like we did uh, with the book of John. God bless you. Uh, I hope you come out and see us sometime. I pray that this will Um, strengthen you, increase in you, and give you knowledge of the living Word of God. God bless you. See you soon. We're starting a new series. We finished up the book of John last week. If you missed it, they're all on the podcast. They're easy to access. If anybody's having trouble accessing, please come talk to me, and I'll help you to access the sermons so that you can hear them. You can go back Uh, Several years, I think 2018 is when we started doing these. So there's a bunch of them. But but the book of John was really uh, special for me. I kind of was thinking, Lord, what is it that you're doing when he told me to go to the book of John? It's like going back to the ABCs. But he had a plan and a purpose and I'm always a little nervous when I start a new, a new sermon series, a new book, and we're starting with the book of Acts. And I got to admit, I, I get a little insecure and a little not sure, Lord, can I handle this? This is, this is really where the church began, and I want to make sure that I don't miss a thing, that I represent it the way he has called me to represent it. And so the first thing that I did is I changed the name to the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I know in the Bible, your Bible, it says the Acts of the Apostles. But if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't be doing what they were doing. The title of the book comes from a Greek word called paraxis, a word often used in the early Christianity literature to describe the great deeds of the Apostles and other significant believers. This title accurately reflects the contents of the book, which is a series of vignettes chronicling the lives of the key apostles 
especially Peter and Paul. This all happened in the decades immediately following Christ's ascension into heaven. It's truly the Holy Spirit that's really at work here through mankind. Luke's identification as the author of this work was unquestioned throughout ancient times. It shows clear the progression from the gospel according to Luke, picking up just where the book left off, the book of Luke. And here's a sample. I want to give you a sample of Luke. This is how he began it, because Luke is the author of Acts. Luke 1, 1 through 4 says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. You can already see his intelligence. You can, Luke was a doctor. He was trained. He, he is an amazing guy. Just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers to the world delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account to most excellent Theophilus. Wait a minute, who's Theophilus? We'll talk about that in a minute. Thank you. It's not thank you. That you may know the certainty of those things which were instructed. That's how the book of Luke starts out. Theopolis, let's talk about him for a minute, was a person whom Luke originally wrote these two books. The Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles. It is interesting that these two books make up 26% of the New Testament, and they were written to Theophilus. So I think that's pretty important. Well, who is Theophilus? I personally believe it was Luke's desire to prove to Theophilus the truth of Jesus the Messiah. His life, his death, and resurrection. It may be that Luke served Theophilus and his family as the personal physician for the family. In this culture, uh, physicians weren't the high class that they called in our culture. Uh, Someone would find a a really smart young man and he would send him off to be trained and to come back and to be the family's personal physician, almost like a slave. It was a really interesting culture that they had. So we don't know exactly who Theophilus was, but the name Theophilus means lover of God. Well, this indicates to me that he probably was a good man that Luke loved enough to write these letters to. So that's all we have on Theophilus. The introduction to Luke's gospel indicates that Luke was a first-hand follower of Christ and the apostles. You do realize that Luke was not one of the disciples. Everybody realized that. He was not one of the twelve. He was kind of on the outside, but he was always there looking in. This is exactly how the book of Acts unfolds, beginning with Peter and ending with Paul. Luke even began to speak in the, in the first person plural, which is like we, I and Paul, or me and Paul. He, he began to refer to himself in the first person in his writing. You'll see that as we go through 
It's really pretty amazing. The other writers didn't do that so much. But before we get started, I want to have a short history lesson. It's not that it comes up so much today, but it's important that we understand. Does everybody here understand what BC and AD stand for? Okay. You know, it's, it's often mistaught about that, that we don't think about it. And it's something that in our current cancel culture, they're trying to get rid of. And it's been going on for hundreds of years, but the fight for it is more now to get rid of the BC, which is before Christ. You have a savior that his birth sets up our, our calendar. It's absolutely amazing. And you know it can only be God. That it's over 2,500 years ago, his birth is what set our time into motion. So we know the BC abbreviation means before Christ. It refers to the time before the birth of Jesus Christ. The AD abbreviation means Anno Domini in Latin. In English, it means in the year of the Lord. This abbreviation refers to all the time after the birth of Jesus. So the history, AC and BC, it was all started by an Italian monk named, I'm going to mutilate this name, Dionysius Exegus. Is believed to be the person who came up with BC and AD or the Christian era. In AD 500s, sometime after AD 525, the abbreviations of this method of calculating time came out of an argument on how to calculate the date of the resurrection or Easter. This is where it all started. And this was all the plan of God. We know Jesus was crucified in the Passover of 32 AD. So he was 32 years old, and after his death, it's AD. In time, prophecy preachers have been calculating the season when Jesus is coming again in accordance with Bible prophecy and 32 AD as the exact year Jesus was crucified on the cross and to get the exact season that Jesus is coming. We know that Jesus is coming. But God said, no man knows the exact date or time. But Matthew looked at it like this. Jesus spoke it like this. Look at Matthew 24 to 44 says, therefore, you also be ready. For the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So it's interesting when you think about just that scripture alone. On an hour that we collectively do not expect. You know, it's interesting when the country goes through difficult times, a pandemic like we've all been through, and we begin to think as Christians, oh, the Lord must be coming. He's got to be coming any day. I mean, how many times have we thought that oh, the, the world is just it's just coming undone? And and, you know, with the, the elections and all the things and now the pandemic and all this going on, certainly the Lord must be coming, getting ready to come any time. It gets us to thinking about it. Are you listening to somebody else's podcast while I'm preaching? Just teasing you. Don't you worry. But think of it like this. What if in four years the elections go back to the way we hoped it should be? 
and the economy comes roaring back, the churches fill up, and things are really going good. We wouldn't be looking to the clouds for Jesus to return so much, would we? So it's an interesting thought that, you know, possibly when Jesus said, the Son of Man is coming on the hour you do not expect, it could be during the good times when we're not looking for him to return. We're loving this life so much that maybe the pride of life takes away who we should really be looking at. It's, it's just an interesting thought. I don't know, because I was thinking the same thing as we're going through these very difficult times. Maybe, maybe the end times are coming. But according to Jesus' words, it's when we least expect it. Just a side note. We are to live ready. And let me explain this to you in case you have never heard this. Living ready is all about what you know in the living word of God. That's what living ready is. It's all about what you know. You see, because what you know produces the decisions you make. The decisions you make produce who you are, or maybe a better way to say it, is who you belong to. Out of the, the decisions you make. Well, I'm having a hard time saying that. Huh? Out of the decisions you make. So it's all about what you know, and that's why we study this living word of God. The Holy Spirit really showed me as we were going through John, it became alive to me again. And it was like amazing to me personally, just bringing it to you. I don't know about you, but I was excited every Sunday to get here because of what the Lord had showed me. Now we're in the book of Acts and we're going to get started right now. Acts, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, oh, Theophilus, Theophilus, can't even say him now. Of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Verse 2, until the day which he was taken up. After he, though through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering of many infallible proofs. Luke is really showing us here the, the, the proof. He's trying to tell Theophilus the truth of what was really happening. Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You know, during those last 40 days, Jesus was really talking. He wasn't talking about salvation so much now. He was talking about the kingdom. He was talking about heaven. He was talking about what is to come. And uh, what verse am I on? Verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Praise God. Verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're always thinking about kind of themselves. Will you now restore? Because they're, they're under Roman rule. It was the Romans who crucified it with the Jews' permission. They're living under oppression. But Jesus said to them, 
It is not, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or season which the Father has put into his own authority. Verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be a witness to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay. Well, I think we need to talk about what is really going on here with the Holy Spirit. You see, you have to understand that the Holy Spirit is the one that draws you into a relationship with Jesus. And when the Bible talks about blasphemy, this is a very interesting point. Has anybody ever been concerned in their lives about the unpardonable sin? Well, I'm going to tell you right here what I personally believe that it is. The unpardonable sin. I believe it's when we reject that feeling to respond to the Holy Spirit. It's to reject that tugging in our hearts to come to Christ when the invitation is given. If we die, having continued to not respond, that's blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Because we did not respond. He was there drawing you, giving you a a chance to accept him and understand. But we keep turning him away. By rejecting these truths, we cannot be forgiven. This is what I believe is the unpardonable sin. The only sin that will keep us from receiving forgiveness from God and going on to heaven. So if you feel like you've committed the unpardonable sin... Let me set you at ease. You're here. You're here. The Holy Spirit has drawn whoever's here today, has drawn you in, and you're here. And you're ready to respond to the Holy Spirit. So don't worry about the unpardonable sin unless you keep rejecting him, keep ignoring him. Even some, some people will be watching someone. It'll be a phenomenal Billy Graham crusade, and that tugging will be on their heart. It could be real. It could be, but they reject it. Over and over and over, they reject the Spirit of God. This brings me to first point. Point number one. The Holy Spirit draws. It draws you. It's what brings you to Christ is the Holy Spirit. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. You said in John 20 that Jesus breathed on them and received the Holy Spirit. Ah, you guys are so smart. Yes, he did. Let's talk about that. This is when they, the disciples, got saved. Think about it. Jesus hadn't died or rose again yet. Salvation hadn't been paid for yet. They could believe in the living God and they could believe in Jesus, but they weren't officially saved to go to heaven kind of salvation that we have because he hadn't died yet. Could it be? It couldn't have happened any other way. Because Jesus hadn't died yet. He had to die and rise again for everyone to receive salvation. When you truly believe and accept life, death, and resurrection, you receive the Holy Spirit that has drawn you to this belief. When he breathed upon them, the Holy Spirit came into them. It's what drew them into that believing point. Let's look at John 20, 
21 and 22, the one that we talked about here just two weeks ago. So Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I also send you. And he said, and when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what draws you. It brings you to him. This brings us to point number two. The Holy Spirit is now in you because he breathed on them. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's the Holy Spirit who has drawn you, and you accept Jesus, you're accepting the Holy Spirit to be within you. But that's but there's more. Let's go back to Acts 1.8. We just read this. It's up on the screen again. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He didn't say come in you. It's a different come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It brings me to point th number three. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit draws you when it comes in you. The Holy Spirit draws you and then comes into you when you accept Jesus Christ. And then he will come upon you when you wait with anticipation and believe for the power for you to be a witness for him. So I want to ask you, why do we need power? Why do we need power? It's pretty easy to understand if you understand what the word witness means. If you truly understand what the word witness is, you would realize why we need power. The Strong's Greek Dictionary, number 33144, witness is martus, is the Greek word. A witness in Greek is martus, and this is where we get the word martyr. We get the word martyr, to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. The definition of martyr, thank you to Merriam-Webster, says a person who voluntarily suffers death as a penalty of witnessing to and to refuse to renounce a religion. Or a person who sacrifices something of great value, especially life itself, for the sake of a principle. And that principle for us is Jesus Christ. When we truly realize the truth of eternal life and have power of the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you, we are unstoppable. We are absolutely unstoppable. Death has no sting. When we truly get this, we are walking today in our eternity. We cannot be stopped. You will complete your course. You will no matter how this body dies, God is in control and his will will be done. And that means that he holds the number of your days of your body. Our spirit and our soul will live forever and we are able to live this life without fear. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. That's what the Holy Spirit is about. That's why we ask to receive the Holy Spirit because of the power that it gives us to understand truly what eternity is and that we're living in that eternity even now. Even now. People try to say the Holy Spirit is all about talking in tongues. 
Please understand that is only one of the many manifestations and only one of the many gifts the Holy Spirit has to offer. Paul makes it perfectly clear, and we will seal so much of this later. So as we go through this study together, without any question, I'm trying to, I'm, I am trying to teach you anything other than the living Word of God. I'm not teaching you a Pentecostal thing. I'm not teaching you a Baptist thing. I am teaching you a Bible thing, ordained and approved by the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? amen. It, it, it's simply bizarre. I even talking to, to my friend, Pastor Jack, he says, Does, sometimes people get weirded out over the whole Holy Spirit thing. I said, yes. And it's not a Pentecostal thing. It's not a Baptist thing. It's a Word of God thing. And we need to know the power that it gives to us to be able to live and walk in, in this eternal life. And that's what we're searching for. That's what we're looking at. So let's go to Acts verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Oh, can you imagine? I want to see that. I want to see the replay. And when they looked up steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. I wonder who they were. Well, we know they were angels. Who said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? The same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go to heaven. Oh, we see how Jesus is going to return. Coming down in a cloud, and I can't wait for that day. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. I want to explain that Sabbath day journey to you. It wasn't a distance a perfect person could cover by journey for a day. A Sabbath, Sabbath day journey was a unit of distance equal to about two-thirds of a mile, one kilometer. That, that is what the Jewish leader established to limit people to journey on the Sabbath, deeming a journey any further would be work, no matter what reason you had or why you were going where you were going. So when they said a Sabbath day journey, they weren't far Verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up into the upper room and where they were staying, there was Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Aphilus, and Simon, the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Did you guys count? That was 11. That was 11. These all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This Greek word for phrase in one accord, I probably will mess it up, homothmadom, means with one mind, with one passion, to strike the same chord. It's used 12 times in the New Testament. 10 out of these 12 times it's used in the book of Acts. We're going to see how important this one accord is. 
The book of Acts is a historical account of the ongoing work of Jesus Christ through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the early church. Reading through the book of Acts, you will discover that the church was in one accord, having one mind, one passion. That's Jesus. They praised him together. They prayed to him together. They served him together. They loved him together. They brought others to him together. They glorified him together. They were all about Jesus and his plan and his mission. And it sounds like us. And I'm proud to say that. We are a very small church, but we're in unity. And that's truly what matters. That we're unified in the body of Christ and we're thinking the same way. We're going the same direction. Everyone has a part of it. They did it together. One day, one place, one message. We will see 3,000 new Christ followers come. We're going to see that next week. 3,000 people came in and got saved. It's incredible. The early church experienced such a wave of salvation because of God's power and their unity. What could happen if we unify and come together in one accord, in one place, to call on God in one prayer. I'm convinced. As we unify in prayer behind the purpose and the power of God, I'm convinced that nothing, nothing is impossible. Nothing at all. Verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up. In the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of the names was about 120 people that were in this upper room. It had to be a pretty good sized room, probably about the size of this room, for 120 people to be in there. And now Peter, you remember who Peter is? The guy who denied Christ? The guy that Jesus had to sit down at the campfire and say, do you love me three times and break him down? Now Peter is the first one to stand up. He said in verse 16, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Wow! It's our first indication that Peter knew Old Testament scripture. Isn't that mind-blowing? All we've ever heard about Peter is him being a fisherman and him making mistakes. All of a sudden, he's saying, hey, by the mouth of David, he knew the scriptures. There's more to this man than we ever knew. Concerning David and talking about Jesus. Verse 17, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. This is the time we first see Peter showing us he had some Old Testament knowledge. We see that there are many more people whom had been following Jesus and his chosen. They numbered about 120 in the upper room. What Peter is suggesting is that they choose one of these to replace Judas. There's people that have been in the room that have followed him through every single story that we've went through. They've been there, just like the disciples. They were there. They were like us, following. Verse 18. Now this man, talking about Judas here, purses a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he busts open in the middle 
and all his entrails gushed out. That's a terrible sight. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called, in their own language, Akaldema, that is the field of blood. For it is for it is written in the book of Psalms. This is Peter still speaking. He said, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. He was quoting the Psalms. Peter's, he, we're seeing a person we never saw before. And the Holy Spirit hasn't even sat down upon him yet. It's just, I'm just amazed. Therefore, verse 21, therefore these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went through, went in and out among us. Verse 22, and beginning from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barnabas, who is surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, O Lord, verse 24, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which of these you have chosen to take part, verse 25, in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go that he might go to his own place. Verse 26, so they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, it's interesting. I don't know if Peter's timing was off or not. He decided through the reading of the scriptures of Old Testament scriptures, listen, a man fell out He's no longer part of us because of his sin and costing our Lord and Savior his life, which we all know had to happen. We need to replace him, and we need to replace him with one of those. So whether, you know, Peter was right or wrong, I don't know, but it's interesting. This name, Matthias, it's the only time it's ever mentioned in the New Testament. We never hear of him again. But later, as we go through the book of Acts, we see Paul becoming an apostle because Jesus presented himself to Paul. I just think it's an interesting thing. I don't know whether Peter missed the mark or not. The thing is, I was so impressed that Peter had the Old Testament knowledge to be able to stand up and make this kind of decision. I was impressed by him. I was impressed by Peter's knowledge of the Old Testament, and you can see that he is establishing some authority amongst the others. So we don't know the truth of whether it was the right time or not, but it happened. The one thing I do look at is Matthew's name has never been heard again. And that kind of tells me something. So then they prayed, Lord, let us know. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry, which Judas had let go with his doings. After Judas's suicide, the apostles met to determine a replacement for him. It's important to note that the precise language found that we find in Acts in verse 20, 
Peter quoted Psalms 69. May his place be desired. Let there be no one dwell in it. From Psalms 109. May another one take his place of leadership. Also in verse 24. And the apostles said that Judas left his ministry. Because you'll notice as we go through. They never replace an apostle when an apostle dies. It's never, it's never happened throughout the word of God. But they replaced the apostle where he had left the ministry. Where he had actually fallen out of the ministry. What emerges from this is that the apostles did not replace Judas just because he died, but they had abandoned his post. There's no hint in the New Testament that the apostles replaced their, their others, fellows, as they died, thus creating a system of apostolic succession. The office of apostle was not perpetual but it was an office of the 12 men given to establish the church as God, as God's new Israel. Over and over in the New Testament, we see a clear distinction between the apostles and those who came after them. Following the close of the New Testament, we find in the earliest Christian writings, like men like Clement and Polycarp, distinguished between the apostolic office and their own office as pastors and bishops. Acts, 20, Acts 1, 21, 22 states that for a man to be an apostle, he had to have a number of the band of disciples from the beginning. A member of the band of disciples from the beginning. In other words, he had to personally be with Christ. And the reason the apostle Paul actually becomes an apostle is because he sees Christ he actually comes. Later on, Jesus calls Paul to be an additional apostle. These qualifications had to be modified for that case because he didn't walk with the living Christ, but now he sees the resurrected one. But one thing Paul had that no other so-called apostle can have, that Paul had a direct and visible visible approval of the other apostles. He was approved by all others. It's clear that there can be no apostles today except in a general sense that all believers are sent as apostles. I don't know if someone calls him apostle, brother, so-and-so. According to the living word, there was only 12 of them, now 13 with Paul. An apostle in biblical terms is an ambassador of the master. He speaks with the authority of the one who represents, he represents. It was necessary for God to establish a brand, a brand of such men in order to ensure the writing of the New Testament and to lay the foundations of the church. Foundations once laid do not need to be laid again. Pastors and teachers in the church today do have authority, but they do not have the same degree of authority as the original apostles. And we have to know that that is true. Tony, could you come on back up? We're going to see so much change 
in people's hearts and minds as we go through the book of Acts. It's absolutely incredible. Is it possible that there could be an apostle today? Well, if Jesus came and visited the guy and, you know, it's, who am I to deny that? But going only on the living word of God, I would say probably not. Pastors, bishops, others, yes. But apostles, I think that's reserved for the writing of the, of the New Testament. So we're going to see some amazing things come out of it. Next week, they're going to be in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon them. It's already in them. It's already in them. But now it's going to come upon them, and we're going to see the strength that it gives them and the power that comes out of the Holy Spirit. I'm very excited about this, this sermon series. It's something I believe that we need. I do get a little nervous. It's sometimes treading ground that I haven't tread, at least in quite some time. But I'm proud to be here with you because we are a church in unity. And the unity is what keeps us together. And the unity is what's going to move God on our behalf. So let's, let's all stand together. <laughs>